relationships to being a body and being a body having a body this is the only way that we come into the world it is that the ground zero of our identity of our whole experience of life that my friends is dr hillary mcbride the author of the new book the wisdom of your body let me tell you about one of my friends listener of the show named matthew hernandez Shout out to my guy up in Dallas, Matthew. Matthew will occasionally like text me and uh, like some sort of like cringe emoji, uh, letting me know that he feels uncomfortable because he never doesn't have his stuff together. He always has his stuff together. And so sometimes on the podcast, like I'm just like, I don't have it all together. And in this conversation, there's a lot of moments like that. I wasn't trained in how to talk about a body. I wasn't uh, taught a lot of this stuff. And so it's going to be, you know, a learning experience for everyone involved. It definitely was for me. So much so that I've continued to think about this conversation uh, since I had this conversation was probably two weeks ago or so. And uh, the way that she helps me connect body with emotion was fascinating. Like before, like you're going to hear this, hey, uh, this is me later in the podcast. Uh, Like I do yoga. I know my body. And uh, like she's really kind and all that. But one of the things that I'm definitely not an expert on is like feelings and emotions. And she really has some great stuff towards the end that really connects the dots for me in a way that I didn't have before. Now, also at the very end of the podcast, we had a little recording issue. It's about the 45 minute mark. And so the audio is going to change for the last uh, eight to 10 minutes of the podcast. But um, you'll be fine. You can get through this. We're a team. We're grownups. We got this. And so um, anyway, hope you enjoyed the podcast. Hope you learned something as much as I learned from this one. You know, at the podcast, we're trying to help you navigate faith in the modern world and how to understand your body is definitely central to that. So without further ado, here we go. All right, friends, welcome back to the show today. We are honored to have Dr. Hillary McBride joining us from the the great country of Canada, the great state of Canada. I don't don't know how to say that right, but anyway. Welcome to the podcast. You got it. You nailed it. Thank you so much. Yeah, so happy to be here. I, I you know, I always like having Canadians on because I feel like no matter how rude I am or how bad my jokes are, you're just going to be pleasant and kind. What what percent of Canadians are <laughs> yeah, just we are known unbear- for that? <laughs> yeah, unbearably nice. Oh my goodness. Well, you know, I think it depends on where you go because one of the critiques I've heard of Vancouver, which is where I'm from, is that we are polite. But you're not going to build a relationship or a friendship with anyone. Like every, people will say they're sorry and they'll move out of the way on the street, but it's really hard to break mm-hmm. into social circles. So there's kind of this like phony, friendly sort of thing. Or yeah, huh? Yeah. So there's a the city like, anyway. Uh, I'm a te- like I live in Texas, and Texas is known for having friendly uh-huh. people. But uh, like the South, I think the short sightedness of the South sometimes can be like this: we're really friendly, but we'll stab you in the back, and we won't like be like right. a Yankee and rude to your that. face, but we'll, you know, stab you behind your back. So there, like some of that's in Canada yeah. too. Well, I don't say people would, people wouldn't stab you in the back, but I've just heard that it's kind of hard to make friends. Uh, maybe that's Vancouver. Hmm. Like I've heard in other parts of Canada, people are just so warm and welcoming. But my experience is that people are polite, but not friendly. People won't look you in the eye, but they'll say they're sorry hmm. if you run into them in the street. So, yeah, okay. I guess every right. well, every culture and every city is different, but that's you can expect that next time you're in Vancouver. Okay, well, um, I've never actually been, so I will look forward to that whenever I do make it to Canada. That's uh, right. You, um, I'm very excited to talk about this book with you. I told you beforehand. Um, Thank you. The, the, the subject matter of talking about bodies, it seems kind of like a weird, hey, we're going to talk about bodies. I, like, even just saying that makes me right. feel like... <laughs> 
Is that the right way to say that? Like, it feels like it's just a little bit off. Right. Oh, I think you're hitting on something. Like, you're, there's nothing wrong with you. The feeling that you're having is telling a story about our culture. The reason that it feels weird to talk about it is because we forget we have bodies, and yet we're constantly obsessed with bodies. And the conversation that you and I are going to have is trying to, I don't know, slice it somewhere in the middle. But not not everybody's comfortable talking about bodies, which is, I think, exactly why we need a book like this, because there's something kind of awkward in our language and our thinking. And yeah, I think we need to we need to do something different here. Yeah, I'm, I'm going to be real honest. I read this on a plane yesterday and I was kind of like doing the, I've done this a few times with books where I'm like kind of like hiding like the, like the cover of it. Yes. Cause like, I don't want people to feel like I'm like, <laughs> I'm reading about bodies. Like, it just seems like it's like you should do this in the privacy of your own home anyway, but there's good stuff in here. And I, uh, yeah, I, I think people need to check, check out this, uh, this book and the conversation that, uh, that you're having, you're leading. Oh. And obviously people like, you just sound, my dad's a psychologist, you sound like you would be a good therapist. I just feel very calm talking to you about oh, this. Oh, thank you. <laughs> thank you. Yeah. Just, well, maybe this, maybe I could ask you a question then with my kind of uh-oh. calm demeanor, my therapeutic inquisition. <laughs> Why do so you scared. think it is? Like, oh no, this is like, this is um, meant to be such a gentle invitation into the conversation why do you think it is that we want to hide the cover of the book like what is going on culturally and in the stories that we've embedded that that it's weird like did you did you dig into that for yourself at all Okay, this is, I'm already, like, I'm already terrified. Um, no, this is good. Like, this, uh, why oh, do I think that is weird? I don't mean to be I'm terrifying. Joking, you know yeah. Um, okay. Well, I think when you think of, like, bodies, it's, mm-hmm. like, one, it's like, like, you're into, like, some weird fetish stuff or something. And so, the, like, there's the, okay. the sex side of it, which is bodies. And okay. then, yeah. Um,. I feel like I was supposed to be asking the questions here. I feel like you've got me stumped right now. Oh, sorry. I turned it around on you. You're doing great, though. How about we come up with an answer together? We come up with an answer together. And I I think you're hitting on something, which is we understand bodies culturally in a highly sexualized way. So we think if we are talking about bodies, then we must be talking about something highly sexualized. Instead of Uh having fingers and experiencing emotion and uh you know feeling feeling joy and laughter and connecting with our environment through uh, you know through our our feet feeling our feet on the ground like somehow we have gotten a distorted perspective of bodies in such a way that we see them as these objects that we need to be afraid of or that are somehow dirty Hmm. or dangerous or get in the way of what's good and right and holy and pure so yeah. the fact that you're having an uncomfortable reaction, again, I, I'm, I meant to say this earlier, I don't know how well I did it, but it's not, it's not because there's something wrong with you. The reaction is because culturally we have some really strange and weird relationships to being a body and being yeah. a body, having a body, this is the only way that we come into the world. It is the ground zero of our identity, of our whole experience of life. Like, how, how are you in the room today? Not just some sort of, like, disembodied thought bubble. You're there in flesh, mm-hmm. right? <laughs> With a pen in your yeah. hand and, you know, headphones on your ears. Like, you are a body here. And yeah. so, if this is where we experience life and we're also in tension with it, then we probably need to figure something out to heal what, what's going on there. 
So in a way, yeah. your reaction no, I, like actually told us everything we need to know about why this book is important. Yeah. Okay, two things. First of all, we've already acknowledged that you are way smarter than me, and within five minutes, you <laughs> judo-moved me there. So, uh, like, much respect to that. Second thing, like, you make the, uh, this point towards the end of the book that this assumption about the bodies being bad goes back to, like, the first heresy that, like, the church dealt with of Gnosticism, the idea that, you know, Jesus was just a spirit, he didn't have a body, bodies are bad, which that comes more from Plato, Uh obviously, than it does from the teachings of, like, as Christians, our sacred text. Yet, that that mentality has stayed around for thousands of years where we've had this weird uh, assumption about, like, bodies are bad. um, Mm -hmm. I think... Richard Beck, I don't know if you know that name, uh, he's an experimental psychologist down here in Texas, but like mm-hmm. he talks about part of the problem with like discuss psychology is like seeing like bodily sounds and like chewing and like there's something about that that we are, we have this revulsion to because it's like very human and very like bodily that we don't want to be around. Animal in a way. Yeah. It's it's sensual. It's animal. It reminds us that we are not um, these kind of superior disembodied cognitive beings. We have teeth and mouth and digestion and we have gas that comes out of our body. I mean, we have all of these things that happen constantly that remind us we are not as perhaps as uh, intellectually superior as we like to think we are. Yeah. Yeah. And, and some of us like lean into that where I've got a friend he's an Enneagram 5 who talks about like he needs to get into his body like at some part during the day he can just stay Mm -hmm. up in his mind and be intellectual but he has to have practices that get him into his body like I don't I don't feel like I've ever been able to to relate to that like I've never felt like I haven't been in my body and maybe it's like just like the routines and rhythms that I have which like I I do mobility yoga kind of stuff every morning like to start the day and like fitness has always been a part of my life so there's always like this tactile experience with life where it's like hands and and movement and sweat and like that's part of how I engage Mm -hmm. with the world but for some of us like to to be disembodied from see what I did there uh, to be disembodied from that sort of Mm -hmm. like physicality makes us feel like we're just a brain kind of floating Mm -hmm. around on like this this bag of skin so here's an interesting parallel if you think that the person sitting next to you on the plane is looking at the book that you're holding and that the book that you're holding is a book about all of those things that you just described. Mobility yoga, getting back into mm-hmm. your body, stretching, physicality. That that wouldn't seem so embarrassing or shameful, would it? Like, you maybe no, actually like be not- proud of it. Like, those things are part of how you are well and how you stay healthy. Yeah. Yeah, no, I wouldn't. I wouldn't feel like yeah. that at all. Like so, if, if it was something that had some like athletic sports fitness connotation to it, it'd be like, uh-huh. oh, that's just a normal, normal thing. But when it's, I, I don't know. Like maybe it was the sex part. Maybe that's the thing. Like the element to it where I'm going, uh-huh. oh, that's the, maybe that's what it is. I don't know. Right. It's such a good question to think about. But I think you have a really important and rare experience of being in North America, being a North American male which is to feel connected to your body, to slow down, to practice tuning in, right? So much of the masculine experience around gender role socialization says that men, when they're using their body, their body is a tool where, you know, you want to fine tune the tool as a way of accruing social value by being more, uh, by being bigger, by being stronger. And so even for a lot of men, connection to the body Mm -hmm. is about 
performing is about appearance is about reinforcing masculinity and the ability to slow down and tune in and to work on stretching is actually i don't know it's a pretty cool thing that you're able to do that that you're interested in that huh okay the the idea though about uh tuning it and using it like to be like more masculine superior okay that's that's a little bit real um that is definitely part of it like with athletics like part of the reason that like i get into like a mobility practice and a yoga practice is so that i can Mm -hmm. do like my sport in a more efficient and effective way and i can train more and train harder because of that so part of it like is the motivation for that but in doing that practice uh for that first sort of motive what i found in it is that like my soul feels very centered and so like my mobility yoga practice in the morning has started to like be incorporated with like some mantras, some uh, some breath prayers, and so all uh-huh. these things have kind of like come uh-huh. together. And like in the start, it wasn't like that, but now I realize, wow, this is why I feel so grounded because it's not just uh, hey, I'm yeah. I'm not just loosening up my hips and opening up my shoulders or something. It's it's that like somehow like I feel grounded in the whole practice. Yeah. Absolutely. Well, I think, I mean, you're just giving me so much incredible content here that I could just riff off forever. I think the thing that I'm wanting to say in response to that is you have acknowledged really the heart of the book. Like we, particularly in faith contexts, but in a broader context in North America, in a white supremacist context of North America, there is a narrative that bodies are bad, that bodies Mm -hmm. need to be a certain way for us to be good or pure or valuable or how to be uh, how to have power socially they need to look and function a certain way and so really what we're saying with that that cultural story is that bodies are a problem they get in the way of our goodness they get in the way of our spirituality and yet what you're finding is when you drop into your body actually you're you're getting access to your spirituality in a new really resourced kind of way that comes not from the top down, not from the head down, but actually from the body up. There's a grounding, a centering, a knowing, an interconnectedness that is not coming in spite of the body. It's actually coming through the body, which is kind of a trip when you think about it. It's so different than so many of the stories that were told. No, and it gives us a new kind of respect for the, what the wisdom of the body is that, that there is goodness and wisdom in the body, but we have to learn how to tune into it and we're so distracted and we're so um yeah we have such problematic stories about the body that get in the way of us being able to do that yeah and we've taken this sort of like platonic idea you know body's bad soul is good you know mind's good body's bad mm-hmm. and what we've done is we've missed kind of like the like the part of the story f- for those of us part of the christian tradition that says like the incarnation is the centerpiece of this religion yeah. it's 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 yeah. god becoming flesh and like the sacraments that we uphold is like these are the sacred sacraments uh-huh. of like the eucharist or, or baptism they're not just like things you say or you think like this is like it's a very like tacitile experience like mm-hmm. it's your body being submerged into water like these are very like embodied uh like spiritual yes. acts so it's not like it's either or but it's 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 all of this together oh you you just described it perfectly yeah i do think it's so funny that we have in so many different uh, faith contexts the story that the body is bad and yet the heartbeat of the Christian tradition is actually the body is so important to what God is doing here Mm -hmm. that God put a body on so that we could see how bodies are part of God's story of being here like it's (laughs) to me we've we've missed something pretty foundational to the sacred text if, if we're not thinking about bodies in that way 
Yeah, no, I, like it, it makes absolutely no sense to me. And uh, over the last f- few years, one of the things that I found, in, like in my own like uh, like spiritual formation practices, things that are far more like in, in connected to the body have become far more meaningful to me. Even stuff from like making mm-hmm. the cross to um, like. Like, like I said, mm. uh, breath prayers with, with uh, yoga poses, those sort of things in some ways um, pull me into something more so than just this like disembodied, hey, I can recite this this prayer that Christians have said for thousands of years, but there's something about like doing it with my full body that I find uh, connects in a different way that maybe in years before I would have just thought, ah, oh, no, just sit down and you can say it however you want. But like when the body is involved, it right. seems like it's a different experience for me at least. Oh, I think you're so right. It's pretty fascinating when we look at what makes up the human experience or the felt sense of identity of being a human, because Mm -hmm. most of us over-identify with our thoughts. We think about what's happening in our thought life or our conversations as being the primary way that we exist. And yet, when we look at what's happening in the kind of the real estate of the brain and the body, the part of us that's responsible for thinking is really about the width and thickness of a quarter, So if you take all of the matter of your brain and you look at that tiny little piece of tissue, that's what's responsible for your thinking self. And everything else in the real estate of your body is responsible for experiencing, sensing, motor control, interacting with the environment in a sensual or tactile way. So we over-identify with thinking, but that's really such a miniature and minuscule part of what it means to be human. So when you talk about getting the body back involved in spiritual practice, no wonder it would enrich us because there's, you know, 99% of the rest of us that we're actually getting to use to take us closer to what's going on spiritually instead of limiting it to this tiny little section of, of the brain responsible for thinking. Yeah. Yeah. So the phrase or the word uh, disembodied. Um, you talk about how it can be a, a mental, a physical, a social experience uh, uh-huh. to be disembodied in those multiple ways. That's a brand new concept for yeah. me. So for some of my listeners who've, who've never heard that, can, can you kind of, dare I say, flesh that out just a little bit for us? Yeah, I love that. That's just, I hope you have a whole list of those that are coming. There's so many good puns we They're could just, work, work into this conversation. Oh, I, okay. <laughs> if you want more puns, I'm here for you. I, I've got you. Oh, yes. Okay, okay. You're the man. Uh, So disembodiment, disembodiment and embodiment are two poles of the same construct. So embodiment Mm -hmm. is the experience of being a body engaging with the world. So not just thinking about having a body or thinking about yourself, but feeling through your body and recognizing that how that is, is shaped by the social world around you. The social world that has to do with politics and constructs and power and uh, gender and size and race and all of the things that go into how we are socialized as bodies. So disembodiment would be kind of the opposite of it. It would be when we don't experience ourselves as a body, but we experience ourselves primarily as a thought or as a series Mm -hmm. of thoughts, or we feel ourselves disconnected from sensation. So there are a ton of different things that can lead into why we are embodied or why we are disembodied. And they fall into those three realms, social, mental, and physical. So you can have social experiences and social constructs that because because of where you are and who's around you, you actually experience more embodiment. So let's just say you are playing, you, you mentioned... Um, being involved in a sport what's the sport that you like to do that all of your stretching uh, I, helps you with 
uh, jujitsu. Jiu-jitsu, amazing. So when you are with others practicing jiu-jitsu, you have a social context in which you have more access to your body. There are people helping you fine-tune and experience what your practice is like. Mm-hmm. And there are other social contexts where perhaps you might feel disembodied. Like, let's just say if you were to go into, um, maybe let's say, black church where people are groove into the music and you're like, I got mm-hmm. white boy hips. I can't do this. Yeah. Right. No, I, because I of the well social then, context. No. <laughs> right. So you That's might feel great. in that context, like, Oh, like I, I'm going up into my head I'm feeling more anxious. I'm thinking about this. I'm not like sinking down into movement and into the groove of what's going on. So, mm-hmm. and then there's other places where if you're around, uh, let's just say you're going for a walk and you have a friend who has, uh, who's accompanying you, who uses a mobility aid, like a wheelchair, and you mm-hmm. are walking up and down the stairs and walking around wherever you want and you're trying to bring them with you, your experience of being a body is going to be different than theirs because they're having to think about, okay, how do I access spaces, whereas you can just move in your body freely wherever you want to go. So social mm-hmm. power, social constructs, social con- like contexts can impact if we are embodied or disembodied. The second one that you're referencing is the mental. So what are the stories that I tell about my body? Is my body an unsafe place to be? Are bodies bad? Mm -hmm. Do I believe that my body is a liability? Or do I believe it's good to be in my body? Do I connect to my body? Is it okay for me to think and use my awareness, my mindfulness to practice sensing from the inside out? So what's going on Mm -hmm. in my mental domain? And that can lead to embodiment or disembodiment. And then lastly, the physical which is the actual sensory experiences that we have of being a body. So some of us growing up, we're told, sit still, don't move, right? So our body is restricted and that makes it hard to be in our body. Like the, another example of that would be, you know, the kids who were told, go play, go roll down the hill, go climb the tree, go play sports or adults. I mean, adults have a harder time being embodied and having the physical domain be one of freedom and play because we're sedentary so much of us unless you are a a dancer or you have a you know a highly physical job maybe in the trades or if you're in sport professionally or you play sport you know for fun as a recreational activity there aren't very many experiences as an adult where we have permission to just play in our bodies but i had this Mm -hmm. you know kind of realization of this the other day with my daughter i was mentioning to you at the beginning of the call i've got a three-month-old daughter and she was i was putting her in the car seat we were going somewhere and i strapped her in and she didn't like it she started you know getting really upset and i could tell she wasn't hungry or uncomfortable she was angry like i don't want to be in here and so she was protesting and telling me and i said to her oh honey i know you don't want to be strapped in like you make so much sense to me you were just free and you were rolling around and kicking on your mat and now you're strapped back, that probably doesn't feel so good in your body. Whoa. And I had this like kind of light bulb moment where I realized like, I don't think any of us want to be restricted in our bodies. And yet so many of us are used to it. It's like we were in a car seat for so long and then we were in a seat, a desk at school. And then we were in a, you know, a desk at, you know, university, or we were in a pew at church or we were, you know, at a desk at our job. And there's this kind of restriction on restriction on restriction. And we were never born that way. We were born having freedom and movement in our bodies. So that's the social, or the sorry, that's the physical domain. And the idea yeah. is that you can use each of those domains to like harness embodiment even more. So if you find yourself disembodied, think about the social spaces you're in. 
notice the kinds of thoughts you have about your body, but also then use your physicality as an invitation to get back home to yourself in that way. Yeah. In in the book, you talk about this uh, authentic movement, I think is what you called it. Like, it's like a dance yeah. class. Like, am I using the right terminology yeah. for this? Uh, one, like it sounds... It. Where'd it it sounds great that you like for you. Uh, there is a zero percent chance mm. that's something that I would ever be interested in doing. Zero <laughs> percent. Uh, like I don't know if I'm going to a yoga class, but like the like the. Uh-huh. But I'm just saying, like I'm I'm happy for you to do your. I've got my thing. You got your thing. Thank but for you, you like yeah. to have this, and you're there, and you got the dude who's got like the flared like um, tie dyed uh-huh, pants, like the sequins pants. I, I love yeah. it. Like, dude, you, you, you be you, man, go for it, bro. I love it. But like, it's just not me. I don't want that. But f- for you, like talk uh-huh. about how that experience helped you, um, like mm. experience your body as it was created to be. Yeah, absolutely. I've had, gosh, so many experiences of thinking about embodiment mentally right so i can i published a textbook about embodiment in 2018 and to publish a textbook is an extremely demanding cognitive feat so if you can think about it i was really in my head about embodiment and at one point uh there's this kind of funny memory i have of my husband coming home and i'm hunched over the computer and he's like how long how long have you been sitting at the computer because it's dark out and i'm only lit up by the glow of the computer he's like what's going on there and i kind of snap out of it and realize my foot has been asleep and i haven't eaten and i thought this is really bonkers that i am i am writing a textbook about embodiment embodiment and I feel very disembodied. So I started to get into looking at different ways that I could come back to my body, that I could use experiences of movement as a way of connecting, not just with sensation, but with freedom and authentic movement or ecstatic dance or the kind of the kind that I practice is called five rhythms. The idea is that there is music and your body is in conversation with music. And so the music invites you into access different parts of yourself and you express, you move in ways that maybe aren't choreographed or structured or don't look good, Mm -hmm. but you're really allowing your body to rehearse freedom. And because so much of this, uh, so much of us as a person is a body, we can practice things in the body that move up into our mind. So if I want to get really good at, setting boundaries with my friends or having mental boundaries, why wouldn't I practice boundaries with my body? So clarity, rigid movements, structure, putting my feet firmly on the ground. And sometimes if we don't know how to do that, we can use music to help us get into movement in a way that we might have a hard time without it. So I started practicing authentic movement as a way to come back to myself and figure out what is, what is it like to be me? not in the ways that I'm supposed to be me, but in the ways that I'm authentically me and try that out. And I had some really challenging experiences doing it. I think the first few times I did it, I just lay on the ground and cried. That was my authentic movement was just to be (laughs) sad about how restricted I had felt in my body. Yeah. Like it was, it was really painful for me. I had my, I've had lots of trauma in my body and had an eating disorder for over a decade. And so to be in my body is a very painful place to be. And so that was the first thing that happened is I accessed the pain of that. And then after the pain moved through me, I was able to start to get creative and feel a sense of wonder and awe. And the experience that I think most of us have had in the church growing up is hearing the phrases, you know, the body of Christ or, you know, the hands Mm -hmm. of Christ or the feet of Christ in these kind of 
symbolic metaphorical ways but when i started doing authentic movement after the waves of grief happened i started to think what if that's true of my body what if my body is not just this barrier to my spirituality but is actually the way that christ comes through the world not just my body but all of our bodies and so it really became this kind of transpersonal metaphysical i think um deeply profound spiritual experience for me to move freely and it i think it's a really big part of my healing Mm, that's great that's wonderful you said something which i can imagine other people have had a similar experience where you go to the authentic movement class the first couple ones you just uh lay on your side cry and yeah, the, the tears are coming from pain for being in your body. Uh, you don't have to talk about your own experience. Mm-hmm. I'm assuming you've had clients who've had a, maybe a similar experience, or you know of others, and you can speak more generally if you want. But could you describe what it, mm-hmm. what that pain is like to 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 get inside your body when you feel like you you have been so like disconnected from it, and how that could yeah. be a painful experience. Yeah. Well, there's something that we think about in the field of traumatic stress and um, stress psychology, the understanding of trauma psychology, the science of trauma, that what happens when we are experiencing something overwhelming or awful is that our brain codes the context, the sensation, the story, the people, the time of day, uh, all of it together with the experience of fear and pain. And it locks it away in a special part of our brain that holds them together so that if you're ever going to experience that kind of movement again or be with those people or be in that area or that time of day or experiencing that sensation, then your body can be ready to fire up all of your fight or flight responses to protect you because it's making an association between those things. It's associating danger with the stimuli or the context. So when I think about trauma in that way, what I understand for myself is that my body was experiencing so much distress that I learned to leave my body and control my body and try to make my body disappear as a way of getting away from those constant reminders of trauma. But going back into my body was kind of like going back to the scene of where the trauma happened, right? For some people who, let's just say someone's been in a car accident, you know that Mm -hmm. the next time you get in the car, it's scary. Or if you, let's say, experienced a violent encounter in a certain street corner, going back to that street corner is going to be scary. Of course, yeah. And if the place where the trauma happened is your body, going back into your body is going to feel scary. So for some people, that can feel like overwhelming heat, fear, constriction, heart racing, um, even changes in vision, changes in your ability to, to use language, the ability to kind of move your muscles really quickly, probably so that your body can get you away from danger and racing heart. I mean, all of the things that go along with feeling overwhelming fear and pain and the remembering of trauma. So really, that was kind of my experience of being back in my body is feeling like I was encountering all of those reminders of why it felt so scary to be there in the first place. Hmm. That's uh, first of all, I'm, I'm really sorry that that's your experience, um, and oh, I assume there's others who've you. had that. Experience. It isn't anymore. Well, I'm. I'm I yes, yeah. I'm glad that that's not your experience anymore. Yeah. But for those who are walking through that, I assume there's some who just go, "Well, just suck it up and get over it," or just run away from it. Like, what is a, mm. like a healthier kind of like self-talk or or way to treat yourself as you kind of like navigate re-entrance into your body 
Yeah, there's a quote that I love. Uh, it's a famous quote in the in the field of psychology that I reference often. It is that the past isn't over. In fact, it's not even past. And the idea is that there are so many things that we think that we are running from, but as long as we are running from something, they still have control over us. They're still dictating the direction of our lives. And actually what we need to do is turn towards the things that feel scary, the things that are hard to get over, and actually look at them and say, why is this still hanging around? What's going on for me here that that this thing is still in my life? If we can't get over something, it's probably because we're not ready to get over it. So actually what we need to do, and this takes way more courage than, air quotes, moving on, is turning towards the thing that was really hurtful and painful for us and asking, what was that like for me? What do I need to heal from it? Why is it still sticking around? What do I need to know in order to prove to myself that it really is over? Because there's this thing that happens when we have not processed an event, which is it can show up like rumination or it can show up like flashbacks or it can show up like avoidance. There's so many different ways we defend ourselves from life, but we call it cycling. So if someone keeps coming back to the same thing, it's not because they're weak or broken. It's because it's not finished. So we need to actually finish it. We need to complete the trauma. We need to know that we're safe. We need to discharge the trauma response from our body and or talk about it or get proof in our tissues that we're through the hard thing. And actually, it's through turning towards it that we can move away from it. Yeah. Well, in in some ways, I feel comfortable talking about like being in my body because of like mobility practice. Uh, one thing I don't feel comfortable yeah. talking about is feelings because I feel like that's a bad uh-huh. decision. Um, I once went to a, a, a therapist when I was in my late 20s and they say, Luke, I hear you talking a lot mm-hmm. about what you're thinking about, but never what you're feeling. And I go, oh, that's an interesting idea. I'll think about it. Um, that was literally my response. Um, so I don't do so well, but you uh-huh. had this observation about like there's a, and I don't have the quote in front of me, but about like an arc with feelings that, um, oh, uh-huh. oh, I forget the line. But um, another one you're talking about. Okay, can, can you fl- can you, you say because I'm going to butcher it. Yeah, say it because I'm going to butcher it. Yeah, feelings feelings are the experiential arc between the problem and the solution. Mm-hmm. That's the one. That's a Diana Fosha. Yeah, that, yeah, that's one hundred percent. So explain that to us, though. Okay. Oh yeah. Okay. Sorry. Yeah. I was like, <laughs> no. I, I, yeah. yeah that's it. it. Yeah. But don't yeah, think yeah. I understand it. Like I tell me I, more. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> okay. So again, feelings. We we think of them as these liabilities, these problems, these things that get in the way. They interfere with our hyper rationality. They yes. they discredit yes. our credibility. And Keep yet, going. You're feelings doing good. are. Okay. okay. <laughs> yeah. You're about to burn it all down. The idea that we have about feelings is wrong, that they're a problem. They, But they really do disrupt the way that we like to exist in the world as these cognitive beings. We like to think of ourselves as thinkers and not as bodies. And feelings exist in the body and they come and they're powerful and they are meant to get our attention. And what most of us were not taught about feelings growing up, there's a few things. One, feelings are, are for our good. Uh, They are not meant to hurt us. They are not dangerous. And in fact, when we stay with them long enough, they actually complete what they're trying to do and they will resolve. So kind of like we were talking about with trauma earlier, instead of avoiding them, we need to go towards them so that they get like they kind of do their thing and they move on. The second thing, feelings are in our bodies, not just the labels that we give them. So 
there are a lot of people who are like, oh, I can, I can feel my feelings, but really what they're good at doing is naming their feelings, which is still a cognitive process to feel our feelings. We need to be in our bodies with them to notice what feels tight. What's hot. How is it changing? What impulse does it come with? Does it have me open? What am I drawn to? How does it make me feel closed in or tight? And can I stay with that long enough that it has a kind of arc to it that comes down the other side? Mm-hmm. And the third thing is that feelings are wired with motivational impulses, which means that they are there to do something. So fear, for example, is wired to get us away from danger. So when we feel afraid, we have a ton of energy move through our body to help us sprint out of there. And joy is meant to help us experience an expansion and a sharing of what is good and right about the experience that we're having in the world. So it's meant to actually ripple out. When we think about laughter, like in delight coming through our mouth and our eyes and the way we say and we pump our fist in the air we're meant to signal to our tribe this feels really good i want more of this so when we say that feelings are the experiential arc between the problem and the solution what's happening is there's a problem that's coming up maybe danger maybe isolation maybe aloneness maybe a lack of boundaries maybe we feel unsafe in some way or violated and feelings are there to give us the motivational impulse to correct the problem. For example, anger, right? If someone has violated my boundaries, I feel anger so that I have enough energy to say, don't treat me that way anymore. And it is anger that actually gives me the courage and the energy and the clarity to set the boundary to protect myself. So when people have a hard time with boundaries, either their boundaries are way too rigid or they don't have any at all, it's usually because anger has been... Um, fragmented or snuffed out inside of them and the ability to know how to feel anger and then regulate the anger so it doesn't just take over and you start smashing things right anger is a really important part of boundaries i, I love that, that concept clarify of, no that that's that's exactly what i want you to talk about yeah? okay. and, and that makes sense that Great. even just stick, stick with anger is that it's like this energy that you're given to work towards a solution and the solution might be uh, create better boundaries yes, or create exactly. a system that um, you know respects your personhood or wh- whatever it would be but sometimes that anger instead of like going towards activity it just smolders inside of us and then it it has exactly. this destructive consequence o- o- on our soul because instead of moving forward it just becomes this 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 fire that just like smolders inside of us and burns us up right exactly Yeah, when you think about that, actually, it's such a poignant example because, like, I think about the number of people who have gastrointestinal distress, which is a result of lack of emotion regulation, right? The gut Mm. is saying, I'm feeling some stuff, but instead of actually moving the feelings through us, we shove it down into our digestive system, and then we have all sorts of stuff that go wrong, or the acid reflux, right? All of the burnt, quite literally burning on the inside of you. So paying attention to feelings and feeling them is actually has consequences for our health. Mm -hmm. Another option, which you didn't mention, but I would say it's at least worth considering is just eating ice cream. Like when you're upset about something and then maybe that will (laughs) pretend like it didn't happen. So um, (laughs) choose whichever option you want to go with. Um, Yeah. Forget everything I said. Hit the ice cream. (laughs) Big fan of that. Uh, Okay. um, Let's talk about bodies. Um, Body positivity is something that uh, obviously is a phrase that has been thrown around a lot. Uh, The phrase uh, body neutrality. Uh, didn't know that one. Is that, uh-huh, is that the right phrase it. that you use in yep. the book? Okay. Um, 
you make the observation, which I feel like basically everyone would be like, yeah, that makes sense, is that most of us view bodies uh, from the outside. And we look at it that way. Mm -hmm. Like a a body is good based on how I look. Uh, I heard someone talk about... um, Fitness, you know, fitness is, fitness is really just about what you eat. Like, if you're going to be fit, you just have to eat a healthy diet. And I'll be like, well, that that kind of minimizes like what the body's supposed to do. It doesn't acknowledge your your strength, right. your endurance, like your mobility. It doesn't uh, like connect to anything other than just the way that you look. Um, you know, what size dress you wear, what you mm-hmm. look like in a bathing suit. Here's also one of the reasons why I never wanted to talk about bodies is because I had a traumatic experience when I was a 24 year old mm-hmm. preacher. I was preaching to my church and I was trying to like make this like statement in solidarity. I think it was an Annie Dillard story about how she felt wearing a bathing suit as a, like a 50 year old woman in front of like a 25 year old woman and it completely bombed. Like I was like, hey, I've got your, like I'm supporting you. And they're all like, well I guess I'm never wearing a bathing suit in front of Luke and I was like well first of all I I wasn't asking second of all like I I was just like I'm trying to be on your side and it was just like a dumb 24 year old trying to do something that didn't work out so that's but when we think about bodies it's so many experiences like that well the thing is I feel like they go better for you because it's like your job and like you're trained in it and and it's one thing hearing a guy talk about a woman in a bathing suit and a woman talking about a woman like you just can't win with that like it was just a stupid 24 year old thing to do (laughs) but when we talk about bodies it's typically from just the appearance on the outside how do we move past that because that seems to be like where everyone starts with bodies yeah oh yeah well I think you you just mentioned it like eating ice cream let's just take eating ice cream okay so Maybe it's not the healthiest way to deal with feelings in a long term, kind of in the long run. But let's yeah, just let's say you're that. eating ice cream. How about next time you're eating ice cream, you notice how it feels in your mouth. You smell it. You actually notice, am I full or am I hungry? What does it feel like when the ice cream's in my tummy? Do I feel better? Do I, am I having like pleasurable experiences having the ice cream? Because it's actually like really delicious and I'm just savoring it. And every single bite, it feels like so enjoyable and delightful. Like there, there are so many different ways that we move inside of our bodies and eating is one of our consistent ones. I mean, we do it so many times a day or when we're noticing when we're thirsty, noticing when we're tired, those kind of ways that we pay attention to our body cues can be one of our first introductions back to the inside of our body when we've lived on the outside outside of our body for so long. So noticing those cues, paying attention to those cues, enjoying our senses, those are some mm-hmm. really practical ways to start off with connecting with the inside of our body. And feelings as well. Noticing, like I was saying, when you feel feelings, actually experiencing them in your body instead of just thinking about them. Yeah. It seems for many, like, that's like, just a different category, though. Like, th- those are my feelings. Right. That's, like, experiences that I'm having. That's not, like, my body is, like... It's, it's like this flesh bag that carries me around, and that's all we like see the body as, right? Right. But like, where are those feelings happening? Like, Those feelings are happening in our body, and whose feelings do they belong to? They belong to me. And how do I know they belong to me? Because there's a coherent narrative that I carry through my life because of this body story that I'm in. Like, Where mm. else is me happening? It's not over there across the room. It's not across the other side of the world. It's not in the future. It's here in flesh. Mm. So we think of our body as being 
this different category, but actually all of it is interconnected. And I'm trying to suggest that we broaden our understanding of what is meaningful about the body from appearance to include sensation, connection, spiritual practice, uh, and an awareness of emotion, all of it. Yeah, it's not like this this disconnected part of us. I I was in this uh, like Thursday lunch group, which I did before COVID for, um, since I got to my church here in Austin, where I'd just do a rough draft of my sermon, people from my church would come up, and uh, I'd preach it, and they'd give me feedback for 30 minutes or so. Anyway, so I'm, I'm in this group, five people from my church, and somehow, I, I don't even know what I was talking about, to be honest with you, and I assume no one else did, um, but one of uh, my friends from church, she was in the group, and she made this observation, and she said, she identified as a... Uh, Again, this is post Andy Dillard reference, Luke, who's still gun-shy about having this conversation entirely. Uh, But she referred to herself as a person who is in a big body. Like, I am a woman who is in a big body. And she was saying that, like, as she came to accept who she was, that was how she understood herself and her body. And I honestly was like, okay, I don't know what to say to that. I I don't know, like, the thought process. But it sounds even, like, that statement seems to be like, her personhood and her body are like disconnected from each other and like I don't I, I don't want to say to that comment I don't know if that's a healthy way or not but you're the expert on this so tell me how I should understand it well I'd want to again I'd, I really want to get in the room with this woman and ask her about her experience how she came to how, how she came to understand herself that way because every person's different and I don't want to speculate about yeah. what her journey is of course what I will say is that when we live in a fat phobic world an anti-fat culture being in a bigger body is something that has a lot of pain associated for it with it for most people that and i use fat not in a derogatory way but in a kind of reclaiming way that the fat community has asked um, people that i know in the fat community have asked me to reference them that instead of that being something we see as shameful we see as something is just a descriptor like tall or short or white or black so for people who live in fat bodies and bigger bodies or live as fat or bigger bodies, there's a lot of pain associated with that. And when we experience pain in the body, what do we do, right? One of the ways is that we separate ourselves from that. We see, we see the body is not us because that thing, that body that has been hurt and shamed by our communities and our cultures, we want to get as far away from as possible. So, it is a survival strategy to make a separation between the mind and the body, the self and the body. And it makes so Mm -hmm. much sense that this woman or anyone else who has any kind of bodily trauma or, you know, marginalization or objectification would separate themselves from the body. That being said, um, there is no experience of herself that has happened outside of the body that she is. And so, I think that there is an even deeper level of compassion and acceptance. And even, I would say, social justice we can find when we realize that people as big bodies in big bodies are no more or less valuable than anybody else. And that this is something that has shaped their lived experience and their worldview. Yeah, I think that uh, makes a lot of sense to me. It seems that there's been a lot of shame when... Yes. the standard that we see has become accepted as what we all need to live up to. Uh, the standard that we see like on screen or whatever as like the ideal man or male or female body. And I, 
like I know that that's a, a shame inducing experience for everyone because no one lives up to that. You, you make the observation in the book, which I feel is like is pretty accurate. Um, that even the closer you get to said standard, it doesn't cause like the, the shame to be minimized. It actually can exaggerate it even more as you get closer, which it seems to not make any sense. Why do you think that is a, a phenomenon? Oh, well, the re- what the research tells us about that is the closer we get to the ideal, the harder we have to work to stay there and the more scared we are about our body changing. So it feels good temporarily. There is a kind of maybe pride or satisfaction or esteem that comes from having your body match what the ideal it says it's supposed to look like. But then immediately there's often this fear of, I have to grip onto this so tightly because if my worth comes from looking like the ideal, then what does that mean about me if my body changes? So what I want to say is like, let's exit out of the whole game and not worry about that at mm-hmm. all and say, hey, it doesn't matter how you look screw the ideal, screw body objectification, let's pay attention to our bodies from the inside out and enjoy whatever our appearance look like or maybe feel different towards our appearance if we need to, but remember that our bodies, no matter what our culture has said about them, our bodies are good and, and are the place where we exist, no matter what they look like. Mm-hmm. My dad's a uh, retired uh, psychologist, still practices a little bit, but he's retired from being an uh, academic professor, a uh, professor in the academic community. But one of his grad students years ago did a paper on body dysmorphia in guys, specifically like weightlifters, bodybuilders. And uh, my dad told me a little bit, I was like, that's, that's fascinating. And then years later, I had an experience, long story short, where a um, person I was connected to uh, got in a situation, someone uh, close to them took their uh, performance enhancing drugs and like this guy had a breakdown and the, this person made this statement he goes without that i just like have puny girly arms uh and i was like oh wow like this isn't just like hey i like to do this or i like to compete as a you know w- whatever um it was deep it was a deep violation of his core like identity mm-hmm. to not have a certain aesthetic and that that's pretty terrifying and there's a lot of stuff about like guys who use steroids that they can't cycle off because once they cycle off there's that deterioration of the muscle mass which isn't just about the muscle mass it's about like their their soul is being deteriorated it's it's fascinating stuff and it's heartbreaking yeah well if you found your worth in what your body looks like and then how your body looks changes it was really mm-hmm. threatening to the sense of self. And the irony is that our body is actually meant to change. It's not meant to look the same as it is when we are a kid, as when we are 50 or 80 or 25, or you've had kids or haven't had kids, or in winter and summer, and all of the different ways that our body is meant to change. There is a fluidity and elasticity and transformation that is in and through our bodies constantly throughout the lifespan. But our cultural narrative and what we see in the media shows that you're supposed to look thin and you're supposed to look young and you're supposed to have light skin and all of these ways that we you know distribute social worth and social power they really they really screw us up and they really disorient what it means to be valuable we think it's about how we look but it's actually about so much more yeah yeah definitely uh like you uh i have women being raised in my house uh, i've got three of them to year one and uh one is teenager now uh which seemed like just yesterday she was a three-month-old that was being uh bellicose because we were putting her in a car seat and that changed really fast and yeah. i'm so sad about it but nevertheless um yeah. you you've written a book about uh like mother's body image i forget the title of it um but um 
There it is. There it is. Um, since I'm not included in that title because I'm not uh, either of those things, uh, mother or daughter, uh, give me the first uh, first rule, first lesson, most important thing uh, that I should be doing as a father raising women in an environment that isn't the most conducive for having a, a healthy understanding of their bodies that I could do to help them flourish. Yeah. Okay. So I can think of a couple of things, but you've, you've said the first, so I'll try to narrow it down. Um, I think you helping them think critically about the media images that they see, helping them dissect them and realize what's wrong with the images is one of the greatest gifts that you can give them because you're teaching them to think. And if you can teach them how to think about media, they will take that everywhere with them, even if you are not with them. The second thing is that you need to communicate to them that their worth, although they might be attractive by social standards or not, that their worth isn't in how they look and that anyone who makes them think that is selling them something. So yeah. empowering them to remember that they have worth and value regardless of their appearance is such an important part of, yeah, of you particularly representing the male gaze, the male narrative, patriarchy. It's important that you offer back to them something that is liberating in that way, something that disrupts the system. Mm -hmm. I think that's a really good place to start. Um, I think another place to start would be to make them uh, read your book, which uh, sure. if you don't have a copy of it, people... You need to get the wisdom of your body. It might be a little dense for an eight-year-old. Uh, I'm not saying that the book itself is like too much for, for most people, but probably for an eight-year-old. She's a good reader, but yeah. it might be a little bit much. Yeah, there's a few big books how, how, for an eight-year-old, you right? Yeah. yeah. She, she did the other day uh, tell my, my wife, she goes, uh, it is kind of weird, Mom, that uh, I'm already smarter than you. So, um, <laughs> you know, maybe... <laughs> Maybe, maybe maybe she thinks she could read it. But, uh, Hiller, this has been great. I really appreciate you taking the time to talk with me and uh, to help me with some of these questions I had. Oh, I'm so pleased. Thank you so much for having me. What a wonderful conversation. And all of your all of your questions were so rich and important, and I know that somebody out there is asking them. And so you really helped us dig into it in a really practical way. See, like, you're so nice. Like, you even thanked me for the questions. Like, okay, you're good. You're good. You're good. I see what you did there. 